0: The Worldcraft Club Podcast. Welcome to the podcast,
1: a time devoted to world building and its impact on narrative, where we discuss any and all topics involving the crafting of fictional settings to inspire your creativity. My name is James. And my name is Seth.
0: And we are your hosts for this delightful half hour. Alrighty, welcome everybody to another episode of the world craft club podcast i am your host james and i am joined here today by seth how are you doing seth i'm doing pretty well james how are you All right, I'm doing very well as well, except I'm super duper tired. Some people were celebrating way late into the night with some fireworks. So I'm a little bit bleary eyed. We're doing our recording fairly early in the morning, but it's not so early in the morning for our friend from afar. John, how you doing, John? Hey, doing well. Busy
2: with a lot of projects, somewhat dead inside, but besides that, I'm doing splendid. <laughs> so dead
0: inside that you lost all your hair. It's like,
2: true. I shaved my head. So with quarantine happening, I decided, you know, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity where I can shave my head and grow back in time that people won't see the ill effects of yeah. that. But, you know, you I can just I experiment. Looked okay bald. Yeah, I, yeah. I look okay
0: bald, but I'm going to try to get the hair while I still have it. On that note, uh, as, as we talk about, you know, the, the great mysteries of what men do when they are left to their own devices for long, long periods of time, <laughs> and and, and these baldness, we're, we're talking about really mystery in world building today. So it's the the kind of technical title for the episode is "What Is Not Told," right? Which I really like as a title because it goes into this. It, it, it's not even just saying like, Oh, mysteries in your world. It's literally just going over the stuff that may not be a mystery in your world. It may be unfinished parts of your world that kind of serve as a mystery. And so John had proposed this idea and we just all fell in love with it. And we all started like, you know, talking about it, chatting about it and putting, putting stuff up on the Google doc with it. And we realized like world builders are incredibly meticulous people, right? Like, we like to fill in all the details. We like to feel like we, we know every, every corner of our world and we need to feel like we have an answer for everything. So this idea kind of runs in contrast to that. And I think it, makes, it gives a, a great number of world builders the willies because they're kind of like, ah, I don't really want to talk about what I don't know about my world. I kind of want to tell you about all the cool parts. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning here that we are really pursuing a different kind of world building to a Mm -hmm. certain extent. So in full disclosure, um, and if you've listened to any of our episodes so far, you've probably noticed this, we err towards giving space for a world to breathe Mm -hmm. rather than packing it full of every possible detail. This idea of what is not told fits really well into then our general world building ethos Mm. because we're talking about using that space to generate mystery and not always having an answer for every question from a world builder's point of view that Mm. is out of the norm right because as James says what do you think of when you think about world builders? You think about somebody who's just about to tell you or talk your ear off for the next 45 minutes (laughs) some piece of minutia, right? That's like what we think of.
2: One of the curses of being a dungeon master um, of any role-playing game is you want to tell your players what's going on. You just want to tell them, oh, I have this really cool thing planned. And then you can't, because if you tell them what's going to happen, it's going to ruin Everything. It literally ruins the game because, it's like, yeah. well, I yeah. guess we're just doing this then. Um, so, oh man, it's honestly, this topic, you can tell I'm excited. This oh, topic yeah. is one of my favorite things to talk about or not talk about in that case. Um, <laughs> just because it's video games, role-playing games, books, movies. My favorites of these media are probably the ones that have the really cool stories and mysteries that Mm. I don't hear about and that you have to piece things together. So I just, I love this topic and I really am excited to dive
1: into it. I'd love to address that practical side at some point during this discussion. Yeah. Um, Because as you mentioned, when you're a GM, you often want to tell your players about The cool thing that's coming up but you can't in order to make sure that they discover the mystery the question then and i think the fear of a lot of gms is that they won't discover the mystery that you're gonna build an entire hidden kingdom right around the corner and they'll be like great we're taking the boat Mm. and then they just totally skip everything you have planned and i don't know about you guys but pretty much every group I have, unless I railroad them into it, tends to just be like, nah, we're going to go over there. So I'd love to talk practically about yeah, not only how you set up that mystery, but then how do you deliver that mystery to make sure people are are engaging with it? Absolutely. So
0: to give our audience a little bit of perspective as well, because I'm, I'm happy to kind of jump into this a little bit too, is that this whole prospect of doing... You know, uh, game mastering or dungeon mastering. What kind of makes that fascinating is that your audience is an active participant in your world, right? So imagine if your readers, if you're a writer, or your audience, if you're if you're a playwright or any any kind of other other media, if you've got suddenly players in there, usually chaos erupts from it. And the thing I find when I'm in this is that there's kind of two directions they go. One is like. They're, they're totally ignoring your plot, but they're also fixated on some element of your world building that you had not developed, right? Yeah. So they're like, what's that guy standing on the corner for? And you go, I don't know, he was just part of a set piece. I was just talking <laughs> about it, and there was a guy on the corner. I just, I felt like a guy should be on the corner, and they're like, well, what's he up? he's mysterious. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of fascinating to me how like anybody who's GMing a game, you will find that your world building is tested because they will latch on to something you didn't anticipate.
1: Which is where the impulse, I think, to over-prep comes in. Mm. Yes, I'm calling it over-prepping. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> calling it being prepared. I think that, as we've said, one of the traps of world-building mm. is that you get too stuck into the minutiae and too stuck into the weeds. And I'm going to defend that position. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's... That sounds good, yeah, go for it. (laughs) So one of the things that we wanna be careful about with this discussion, because we do wanna keep it as a world building discussion, is that we don't slip into narrative. But the story that you create as a GM, as a writer, as a filmmaker, as a comic book illustrator, whatever sort of story you're putting together exists inside of a world, right? And creating details about that world is absolutely necessary in order to have a good story. But depending on the type of story you're telling and the effect of the story that you want to tell or that you want to generate with the story you're telling, space actually becomes your biggest ally. And the reason... Is because if you have a group of players sitting around a table, we're going to stick with a GMing example here, TTRPGs. If you have a group of players sitting around a table and they start coming up with reasons for things existing in your world, nine times out of ten, I bet that they are going to come up with better and more fantastical reasons for everything than you ever could have. And the reason is because when you are creating a world, you often become locked into a very specific way of thinking. But the truth is that reality is not narrow. Reality is really wide. And so the reasons for things that happen are all over the place. If you look back through history, one of the most interesting things to do is just look at the sheer number of coincidences that lead to... Things happening that lead to nations falling, that lead to, you know, upsurges in ideas, just coincidences. A great example of this Napoleon Bonaparte, considered one of the greatest tactical minds in all of uh, European history. Do you know why he was in charge of the Italian army? It's because he was pretty much the only guy left who hadn't had his head chopped off by the guillotine and he could read and write. <laughs> so he went from being effectively a clerk to the general of the Italian army. You and mean was the French the, army? No, the Italian army. The
0: Italian army?
1: Yeah, Napoleon was originally in charge of the Italian army, which is where he won all of, or he demonstrated that he could be a good general. And then he got shipped over to the French army and eventually became the emperor of France 20 years after they deposed all of the rulers. They voted him as emperor.
0: I just I assumed you were having
1: a senior moment.
0: I thought you just no. lost your mind. Um, because I'm, I'm No, I'm yeah. pretty sure that's right. That's
1: amazing. Yeah. I'll have to double check that just to mm-hmm. just to make sure, but because now no. I'm questioning myself.
0: No, no, no. I just, that that's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. So it it's that that idea that we don't know so so the actual history then of, of Napoleon Bonaparte is like a little like both less and more interesting to me. Yes. Though that I know more. So like, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me, like how there, there are just these great mysteries all around us. So, um, I read this quote the other day by George Eliot. I watched the new little women, uh, with my wife, uh, the other day. And, uh, they, they do this amazing quote by George Eliot, which is, uh, essentially says this, we would not love the world so well, had we not had our childhood in it. And um, I just, oh, that just broke my heart. I like uh, one of my one of my favorite kind of ideas. And I think oftentimes when we're world building, we wish to reclaim that sense of lost childhood wonder in the worlds that we make. And I think it was Chesterton who said, like, the world is short on wonder, not wonders. Right? Like, there's a lot happening around us, and it's super interesting to dive into any amount of it. And when we do world building, I think like bottling and distilling that sense of wonder is one of our jobs, right? Like it's, it's about kind of recapturing that childlike sense of what's around this corner. It could be anything, you know, Mm. and in our worlds, that's in, in our real world, that's what we're doing. Yeah. I think that it, especially when you're telling a story, trying
2: to contain that and bottle it into discernible, rationable amounts, it can be really difficult because it's like, you know, you've created this thing and you want to tell everybody about it and everything about it. And that's awesome and that's great, but part of it is just discovering one thing at a time and going from, oh, that's really neat, to wow, that is really cool, just at any discernible moment. If you have just exposition that's it technically wouldn't be the definition of exposition when it's like a 40 page essay about yeah, your yeah. world. Um, <laughs> that goes just into you know a research analysis. So exposition um,
0: and, should be succinct by definition, really. Yes. So, yeah, so really we're fans of exposition. We're just right. yeah.
2: Yeah. Good exposition is is perfect for your world, but like when you go too far into it then it's like, you kind of lose the wonder. And even then, like, if you talk about four or 40 pages about your world, your readers, your players, uh, whoever are going to be sitting there like, okay, but can we get back to the story now? It's really cool. (laughs) You know, 30 mountain kings of lost age and everything. But like, but what if, you know, you drop that detail towards the end of the book? Like, oh, there are 30 mountain kings of lost age. Then it's like, whoa, wait, I didn't know about this. What are these Mm -hmm. guys? So, like, yeah. yeah, being able to control that into
0: water bottle amounts instead of waterfall amounts is definitely <laughs> a good thing. It's a little bit like that thing where if you're hot and sweaty, apparently, you should not just down a bottle of water. You should sip it, right? Because mm-hmm. you can you can, you can can harm yourself. I feel like exposition is the bottle you sip from when you're thirsty. Like, you need to be able to kind of, like, give it a little bit and that just that'll that's the healthiest amount for the narrative. Like otherwise you're going to make your narrative throw up. So Mm -hmm. like, you know, it's like just a matter of, of easing that in, especially if you're the GM and you actually have a fictional history for that guy on the corner. If you guys have ever seen, um, community there's an episode where they do Dungeons and Dragons and I highly recommend that episode for anybody that's unfamiliar with it this will give you a good idea But Abed has a binder like as thick as a human forearm is long and whenever someone asks him a question he just flops this thing onto, onto, onto the desk and just flips it open and goes okay so that was a goblin bridge probably built around this era yeah it would burn if you put a cast immolate near it and like it's like explaining all this stuff he just has it all detailed and um, we've all met GM's like that who have the explanation for the guy on the corner but it's not always there and you're likely to bore the ever-loving crap out of your players like that classic um shirt i didn't ask how big the room was i said i I cast cast fireball Fireball. (laughs) which is 100 every player so like a lot of times they don't really care too much about your world building uh, elements around the outside of it um they they just want to do what they wanted to do and they want to interact with it in the way they want to interact with it they don't want to know when the goblins made it they want to know whether or not the bridge burns <laughs> like that's yeah. the question and um
2: know, when funny. that when why the bridge burns becomes really relevant to the players in the consequences and in the narrative that's when there's good world building involved, in my opinion, because then it's like, oh, wait, we just have random hordes of goblins coming after us. Why the heck did we do that? And then the guy in the next town over says, oh, were you the guys that burned down that historic goblin bridge?
0: Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like,
2: yeah. Now it's relevant. Now you've told them a neat bit of world building and now it's like, okay, wait, tell us about this goblin bridge. Well, it was built by this guy and then now those details are really cool instead of just being like, oh yeah, you see this goblin bridge, which
1: binder. And you know, like then it's just kind of like, oh, okay, it's a goblin bridge. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump in here and I'm gonna ask a question that's sort of been burning on my mind, okay? And I think that this is something that we just have to address Um, because it will come up. There is a concept in writing that says, if it doesn't matter for the story, leave it out. World building is an entire exercise in breaking this rule, right? So the question I have for you guys is, how do we resolve with this idea of space, with this idea of things not told, How do we resolve that with this concept of at the end of the day, the only thing that matters in a world is what contributes to the narrative?
0: I think that's going to be very challenging to uh, our listeners who are already enmeshed in world building to kind of go, oh, how do I do this efficiently? And really, that's the question we're grappling with, right? It's like, um, and I think John John said this well, we're a fan of good exposition, right? Not bad exposition. <laughs> and this is where we kind of need to draw that line, right? We need to say, like, when is it useful and when is it not? And I think with world building, it always comes back down to establishing boundaries. It comes to setting expectations. It comes down to somebody feeling like they are present in that world. And what we're talking about is something that's intangible. It's like a currency in your world, the sense of wonder, right? It's limited, and you spend it when you expose it. So when you expose it a little bit, you spend a little bit of that wonder, that sense that we don't know what's around the next corner. You've told them. This is around the next corner. And you then have to get something back for that. So my sense is that like, people are already creating the world around them. When you're world building, what you're doing is you're taking your audience's hand and you're telling them, this is how I want you to see this part of the world. And we're then kind of saying, like, when we leave that that space, that blank space in the canvas, we talked a little bit in prior episodes about like minimalism versus maximalism, and this idea that blank space on your canvas is not your enemy. It's space that people fill in with their own heads. They've already filled that in. They already imagined that, like, uh, at the end at the prancing pony, there's a cat that that runs out of the door just as they open it up. You know, they have that in their head. As a writer, as a, as a storyteller, as a world builder, the question you're always asking is like, do I tell them about the cat or do I let them just imagine that there's a cat? (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, um, I think that's really where a lot of this kind of sits. It's, do you want to spend a little bit of wonder and explain this? Or like, is it that important to the story? Um, because another kind of side of this is, as you explain things, you also create another branch for somebody. So like, it's silly, but you kind of go like, you know, oh, the cat runs out of there. So and, and, and your players, especially if, you're, if, if you've been a GM, you know this, and I don't want to stick too hard on, on d and and all tabletop role-playing games, but this is interesting because this is where your audience's mind goes if they're in the world, right? So the fascinating thing is if you're writing a novel, you always have your audience by the hand and you're telling them this is what you see, this is what you do. As players, they go, is the cat important? Follow the cat, you know, like, and um that's kind of what, what sort of happens in those. And, and then
1: they derail six months of, of hard work on your end because they're following the cat. 100%,
0: so they, oh.
1: following the cat.
0: Just and throw out the notes yeah <laughs> if they're free to imagine that the cat is actually like kind of like a felinoid shapeshifter mm-hmm. and that's what they go and do and that's the imagination that they put into it then that suddenly becomes really significant jk rowling does this a lot in her mysteries is that once you've read one of her books and you go back and you read it again you go uh, when you see things, the little details that she put in there, which you thought were just whimsical and matched the tone, actually were clues the whole time about something taking place, um, which is which is kind of a fascinating thing. It's It's very present in mystery and horror. So I think we're always kind of messing around with that and trying to find that balance. And I think some of it's just dependent on your genre, right? Yeah. I think... The other two know this is
2: coming, uh, but for the listener, <laughs> I'm wearing my Legend of Zelda t-shirt right now and just like like sitting here getting all jittery. Um, but <laughs> I, I love the game Breath of the Wild, right? Breath of the Wild is awesome. And that this is one of the elements of Breath of the Wild is that there are a ton of things in that game that are like, why is this here? Why is it like this? You know, how did it come to be like this? And the answers are, mm-hmm. and they're just not there. They're they're not in the game. Uh, you can try to run around and figure out some of this stuff, but you know why is it like that? Well, I don't know. Like your guess is as good as mine. Um, some of the things that it does. I will try not to talk about this too much, but <laughs> just like one of the cool things about the Legend of Zelda series, if you're not familiar, is like all of the games are technically supposed to be standalone. Even though this has been an NES classic to on the Nintendo Switch, it they were designed to be okay, the Legend of Zelda is this. No, the Legend of Zelda is this, and just different worlds altogether. But after a lot of fan backlash and you know, plot mongering. Nintendo finally came out and was like, all right, here's a timeline for all of the games um, since you had to put it into a timeline. Breath of the Wild just kind of like said, hey, um, have fun with this, guys, because there's elements in that game where it's like, oh, well, this bridge is from Twilight Princess, but those are Koroks, which are in two different uh, timeline variations. But then you also have this place, which should have come after this game, but but like, wait, and you start putting these pieces together and the pieces don't fit. It doesn't work. And then now you're, you have this question of like, is this some weird time paradox thing where, you know, like Breath of the Wild came before and after Skyward Sword, the first chronological game? And the answer is, I don't know. Um, And that's amazing because it just adds all of these unanswered questions. And to just have the excitement of going through that game trying to figure that stuff out is brilliant and awesome.
0: So how did they nail that? Like is, is, is kind of really like the next question because like I've seen two things before. Like I have seen world builders get totally tripped up by trying to create a mystery and no one cares. And I've also seen it screwed up where world builders will sit you in a corner for an hour and just explain to you why the monks in their world uh, practice this certain type of martial art as opposed to a different type because of some great split in the history. And it's like, it's not relevant to the story. They're just excited about it. And it's just some flavor in their world. And I've kind of seen both ends, you know, just over at Exposition. I've seen sometimes mysteries get cheapened by their being too highlighted, almost too much camera work on the mystery. And so mm-hmm. you're kind of like, oh, I guess I'm supposed to go south because you said there was something really mysterious there. How does Breath of the Wild do it? How do they nail it? So some of it is the subtle clues that
2: it gives, right? So, like, there's um, two main examples. First, there's things like the dragons. There's huge, long dragons that are in the game. There's three of them. And the first one you encounter is likely on the top of a mountain, which is surprising because you get to the top of the mountain and you're like, oh, that's a dragon. Did not expect to see that. Um, Hate when that happens. Yeah. (laughs) And then the two other ones, you might see just floating through the sky on some nights. And the game doesn't really give you a, a solid, like, hey, there's dragons in this game. But, you know... Your prob- your first experience with the dragons is probably just going to be like, hey, what's this long thing in the sky? And you zoom in with your camera and you're like, what? Like, is that a sky serpent? What the heck? Um, and so like sometimes just like dropping it and showing it to the players and just like, here it is, you know, there you go. And letting the player digest that for themselves and theorize for themselves. Like, well, can I get to it? Can I run up to it and touch it? uh can can i talk to it uh being able to just ask the questions i think that's one thing is just asking questions
0: yeah i I think Um, the sesame street game of one of these things is not like the other really kind of comes in comes into play like something that's out of place will always draw someone's eye so when you're wandering around zelda breath of the wild and you look up and you just see like this thing in the distance and you're like what is that you know it's there on purpose, right? Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things with like narrative in, in in written stories, is like whenever you say something, you are breathing it into reality. So you know it's there on purpose. You know, it wasn't a mistake that they, you know, animators worked on that dragon, they'd be angry if you didn't notice it, but there it is, right? Mm-hmm. So in our worlds when we're writing them, every time you could do something like that, poof, it comes into existence. And the whole one of these things is not like the other element really comes into play and they go, what's this doing here? And if you don't explain mm-hmm. it, you let them think about what it might be. That's a really good, sorry, yeah, carry on.
2: No, yeah, you're good. Uh, the other thing which I can summarize the two other things that I know into one is like you have locations like the um, the Forgotten Temple, which if you haven't found it yet in the game, on the map, there's a small pinpoint that you can't see. Typically, it does hold a shrine, uh, which is like one of your objective pieces in the game for those who don't know. Mm. But the Forgotten Temple is designed physically to look like a temple from the first chronological game in the series in which this temple basically comes down from the sky and lands on the earth and is now part of like the physical world and it's in ruins, right? And you don't know that it's in the game until you stumble on it. And you don't really get any hints that it's there or anything, you just kind of have to find it. And you kind of get those unanswered questions where it's like, well, wait, if, you know, how, why is this here? Like, how did it get here? like, why is it in this location instead of that one? And you start asking these questions. And then you also have things like the Guardians, which you've probably seen images of online Mm. in memes and stuff where it's these giant uh, six-legged robot things basically created by ancient technology from basically a group of people known as the Sheikah designed Mm. to fight against the arch-villain of the entire series, Ganon. Ganon. And Ganon takes them over and ganon transforms good robots into bad and you know they're mechanized because you pick up gears and stuff from them when you kill them and they're robotic in nature and they run off of some form of electricity or magic but that's it you don't know how they're built you don't know how many there are you Mm -hmm. don't know exactly where they came from and you get this question well well, you know why are these things here who built these things like how did this come to be and the answer is i don't know um, and I know I'm saying that a lot that I don't know, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, no. but I think there's, there's an element to that, right? Where purposely putting in an I don't know is really interesting because then you add a sort of, you literally add a barrier to your world of, Hey, nobody knows this because the guy who's the mastermind of all this doesn't know this. So your guess is as good as mine. That. Can be frustrating to some people that want to know everything. But for the majority of people, that adds this air of mystery and um, just like uh, life to the yeah. world where it's like, yeah. yeah, there are things that no one's ever going to find out because it's lost. There are things like that in the real world.
0: Where there's ancient texts, uh, you know, religions and Greek you know, calculators that got sunk in the ocean, behind yeah. mechanical gears and stuff. And We're like, why did yeah. they need to do that much math? Yeah, all oh, the I geometry mean, and, they were doing. Gosh, exactly. Find out this angle. Yeah. <laughs> and like you Piss look off at every like ninth grader from history. <laughs> <laughs> <You
2: know? laughs> um, and like you know, you look at like the Aztecs and the Mayans, who are these like advanced civilizations. That you know had crazy calendars and technology and everything, and then they got wiped out by you know weapons and disease from you know uh, the Spaniards that came over, mm-hmm. and all that technology is lost. And we asked, well, how did they build these giant structures? How did we, you know, how, how did, did they, they build manage- their civilization like this? And the answer is, we don't know. And it's always going to be like that because it's that is lost to
0: time. And building that into your world is really cool to be able to do that this is especially important when we talk about horror right like it's this notion that like we say it's lost to time and one of the things we talk about is wonder but i kind of feel like there's a few things this can do so there's an idea that the reason why we laugh is that there is this there's this break between what we expected and what happened and laughing is the exhaust fumes of your mind kind of bridging the gap and it's why a joke is funny, because it breaks your expectation. I think that diverts in two directions, either horror or humor. Like it either becomes farce or it becomes horrifying. And like you talk about like the Cthulhu mythos and things like that are reliant on this idea that you can't understand it. It is beyond your understanding. And the author never wrote it with a sense that it could be understood. They didn't know. They didn't have the answer for the Cthulhu mythos. They just had uh, non-Euclidean geometry. That's what they call it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, And that brought out this kind of sense of horror. Alien Mm -hmm. was another good example. You don't know what the thing's capable of in the first movie, and that's why
1: it's so scary. I do think that we would be remiss to miss mentioning that this is also the downfall of the Cthulhu mythos, Hmm. because as soon as more information is released, as soon as somebody creates more in the Cthulhu world, you turn from horrifying cult at the edge of the ocean to, oh, we're being invaded by sea people. Hmm. And that extra little piece of information, oh, it's an alien race that lives on the bottom of the ocean. Scary? <clears throat> eh. Only in that they can shoot us or you know eat us or whatever. When the Cthulhu mythos initially emerged, you know H.P. Lovecraft's stories rely on the fact the hero or or the person writing walks into a village mist covers it mist goes away and everybody's gone right mm. and that's all the information you get and then you explore this now empty village or you you read the ravings of the yellow king and things start getting weird as soon as you're like nope it's aliens they lose an alien that landed on Earth, went under the ocean, has been sleeping there because he was in a giant fight with these other aliens that landed on Earth that were trying to like as soon as you start explaining the history of it, mm. it just completely loses its potency as yeah. horror. Right. And so the genre just really relies on this sense of mm, we don't know.
0: Yeah. And that that is it, it's 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 interesting to me because with with the movie alien and aliens right they started with horror mm-hmm. but then in aliens james cameron reimagined it into a sci-fi action movie he did a pivot right like in essence cthulhu mythos has been robbed of some of its mystery which has just just kind of wrecked it but if they made it now into an action movie I'd watch that. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. somebody fighting the sea people is now fascinating and Cthulhu's still like scary because it's very yeah. alien and weird, but it's like the sense of dread of not knowing why it's a little bit like the same reason why the best deaths in horror movies are off screen. Yes. And um, that is because it's not even that your imagination is worse. It's just that you don't know. It's the literal fact that it's not known. Yeah. So, I mean, as we've gone through this, we've kind of talked a little bit about how in your world building, the the blank space, the, the stuff that is unexplained can be your ally because your players, your audience, the people watching this or reading it often do a better job kind of building the world around the margins than you do. But sometimes just even the fact that they don't know, is really powerful and when you expose it when you when you when you break this stuff down you're kind of spending a little bit of that wonder currency you're kind of taking a little bit of it away. so it had better be important if you do break it down it had better be key to the narrative which is how we're kind of breaking and not breaking that rule of if it doesn't matter leave it out right so there's a little bit of both in there a bit of um, tension tensions a good word for that and then the other thing is like it's taking the pacing right like you don't want to dump everything about your world out in one go you want to leave the cat that runs out of the bar unexplained right like it's even though it's it's only it is only DD players that would chase the cat it's no one else they're a special they're a special category of human beings that chase cats around villages to find out where they're going um normal it's people true. Do that. It's, <laughs> yeah we'll just, we'll just admit it but it's um for the most part you don't want to drop all of this out in one go and this is where breath of the wild kind of really nails it is they kind of play the sesame street game of one of these things is not like the other what's that dragon doing out there you know it's there for a purpose it's pre it's 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 in position you know that they they put it there for a reason but the explanations are kind of not forthcoming, but because it's so odd and doesn't really fit, it leaves your audience kind of going, huh, what's that for? And they do a good job of not highlighting it so explicitly that it becomes like, ooh, what's the mystery? It doesn't, It's because it's not central to the plot necessarily, but it's there. Uh, Same with these guardians and the purposes behind them. Like you don't fully get it. You know there's a little bit of history, but it's kind of bottled in these little moments So I think we've kind of stumbled across a few different things that are key to retaining this blank space and not just having it, but using it effectively because there is a fine line here. Eventually, you're just a lazy world builder if you don't build anything in your world, and that sucks. But it's about majoring on the majors and minoring on the minors. What's critical to your story? Have that very well developed. What's not? Maybe leave a little bit of room for mystery because that might be more effectively spent as wonder rather than exposition. So I want to thank you guys for joining us. This has been another episode of the World Craft Club podcast. I'm James. I'm Seth. I'm John. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining Seth and I on the World Craft Club podcast. Please go ahead and like us, subscribe to us on your preferred app, and if you use iTunes, rate us five stars if you think we're worth the rating. It really helps our numbers. If you're listening here, you're missing out on half the content along with loads of other goodies, so please consider becoming an exclusive club member at our Patreon page, starting at as low as $5 a month. If you have any questions, you can go ahead and jump on our webpage, worldcraftclub.com, to get the latest updates on our blog. We're also available on Twitter and Instagram. This has been the World Craft Club podcast. Thank you for listening.
1: Before you kill the recording, Mm -hmm. I do have to issue a correction. So I was incorrect. You were correct. Napoleon was uh, in charge of the French army, not the Italian army. The army was called the Army of Italy. Ah. So when uh, I... When I initially read that, I thought it was well, Italy's the army. Arm. Now it's just a no, French expeditionary force, I it, guess. Was, <laughs> it was the French army that was there to conquer Italy.
0: Ah, okay. No, that, that that's interesting. We'll have, to, we'll have to drop that in as a sting yep. in the tail um, at the end of this episode. Wikipedia is my friend. All right. Well, look. I love you guys that was a I think I think that was a solid episode I think that was neat mm-hmm. did we do we touch everything that we needed to is there anything yep, that we I want so. to kind of say off the cuff now and edit in later
2: don't lift off the helmet of the Mandalorian leave it on